You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 261 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall with the last episode, we talked about how Hooker's right wing, the Federal Flanking Force, had quickly crossed the Rappahannock and Rapidan Rivers and was headed for Chancellorsville, while the Federal left wing at Fredericksburg had crossed the river in force just below the city in order to apply pressure there to keep Robert E. Lee from responding to the threat to his flank and rear. As we said at the end of the last episode, Hooker's plan appeared to be working to perfection. The three corps of the Federal flanking force had crossed the Rappahannock at Kelly's Ford, far upstream from Fredericksburg, on April 29th. Stoneman's Union cavalry had then crossed and cut away from the flanking column to set out on a deep penetrating raid into the Confederate rear areas. Hooker hoped Stoneman's horsemen would be able to wreak havoc on Lee's supply lines and cut the roads the rebel army would have to use to retreat back toward Richmond. Meanwhile, the Federal flanking force continued on and successfully crossed the Rapidan River. Howard's 11th Corps and Slocum's 12th Corps crossed at Germana Ford, while Meade's 5th Corps crossed the river a bit to the east at Ely's Ford. Then the Union flanking force was once again on the move at daybreak on April 30th. Skirmishers pushed ahead of the columns as the Federals felt their way through a forbidding region known to the local inhabitants as the Wilderness. In his book on Chancellorsville, Stephen Sears writes, It was called the Wilderness of Spotsylvania, or simply the Wilderness, a distinctive tract of Virginia woodland some 70 miles square. North to south, it ran from the Rappahannock and Rapidan Rivers to three or four miles south of Chancellorsville. East to west, it extended from about Tabernacle Church to beyond Wilderness Tavern. Since colonial times, the wilderness had been the scene of a nascent iron industry, but all that remained of it now was Catherine Furness, a mile and a half southwest of Chancellorsville. Abandoned in the 1840s, the furnace had recently been reactivated to produce iron for the Confederate war machine. It was this iron industry that gave the wilderness its distinctive character. Most of the first-growth timber had been cut to make charcoal to feed the furnaces and foundries, 
to be replaced by a second growth tangle of dwarf pine and cedar and hickory and a scrub oak known locally as blackjack. Undergrowth in this warped and pinched forest grew dense and brambly. Men who fought in the wilderness would remember it with fear and hatred, a dark, eerie, impenetrable maze. It was about noon or a bit before on Thursday, May 30, 1863, when the vanguard of Meade's V Corps reached Chancellorsville. Then, in mid-afternoon, Slocum's XII Corps arrived, followed by Howard's Eleventh. Despite its name, Chancellorsville wasn't a village, but was nothing more than a large, two-story brick home that sat in a 70-acre clearing in the eastern half of the wilderness at the intersection of the Ely's Ford Road and the Orange Turnpike. Starting in the early 1800s, the house had served for decades as a tavern and inn, providing food and lodging for travelers heading up and down Ely's Ford Road and the newly constructed turnpike that ran toward Fredericksburg. But by the spring of 1863, with traffic on the roads only a fraction of what it used to be, the house served primarily as a private residence for Frances Chancellor and her six daughters. When George Meade rode up to the big house, he saw four of the Chancellor women on the upper veranda, giving the incoming Yankee troops an angry welcome. One amused Union soldier noted that, quote, They were not at all intimidated. They scolded audibly and reviled bitterly, end quote. Ignoring the women's fury, Meade's staff officers told the family that their house would be Hooker's headquarters when he arrived, so all of them would be confined to one room at the back. Until this moment, federal officers and men had been nervous about the march. Meade's column had been separated from Slocum's and Howard's troops in the tangled wilderness, with no roads between them for communication. But once the flanking force reconcentrated without incident at Chancellorsville on May 30th, many of the soldiers assumed the worst had passed. Even Meade, notorious for his hair-trigger temper, was uncharacteristically exuberant, greeting his fellow corps commander with the exclamation, This is splendid, Slocum! Hurrah for old Joe! We are on Lee's flank, and he does not know it! Meade realized that in one fell swoop, Hooker had managed to plant a sizable force squarely behind Lee, 12 miles west of Fredericksburg. As Meade eyed the road east, he knew that if Hooker acted quickly, he could trap the rebels in a vice. But Slocum smothered Meade's exuberance with word that Hooker's orders were that the flanking force was to halt at Chancellorsville and not move farther forward. One of Meade's aides remembered his general's reaction to that news. Quote, how his face fell. Hooker expected to arrive at Chancellorsville that night. 
Everything had gone as planned so far, and according to the plan, the flanking column was to halt at Chancellorsville and wait there for reinforcements that would arrive from Couch's Second Corps and Sickles' Third Corps, which were slated to cross the Rappahannock that day and the next at U.S. Ford, the nearby crossing point that had just been uncovered by Meade's advance. Hooker felt no need to hurry. His campaign was in its fourth day, and everything had gone off without a hitch so far. According to his timetable, tomorrow would be soon enough to continue the advance from Chancellorsville, after his flanking force had been reinforced by the troops from Couch's and Sickles' Corps. Earlier, before Meade had found out from Slocum that their advance that day was to halt at Chancellorsville, he had already pushed forward a brigade two miles east of the crossroads. But after his meeting with Slocum, Meade told that force to break off its advance and return to Chancellorsville. That night, Meade summed up his thoughts on the subject in a letter to his wife, saying, We are across the river and have outmaneuvered the enemy, but are not yet out of the woods. Robert E. Lee had spent much of the day on April 30th trying to discern Hooker's intentions. As more reports came in indicating that a strong enemy force had crossed the Rapidan and was advancing toward Chancellorsville, threatening his army's left flank and rear, Lee's main concern was increasingly for the three brigades from Dick Anderson's division guarding against any enemy advance from that direction. Lee's instructions to Anderson had been to select the best defensive line he could if the Federals advanced in force toward Chancellorsville. Well, the enemy was indeed advancing in force, and Anderson's first thought had been to set up shop at Chancellorsville itself, but he quickly decided that spot was no place to make a defensive stand. So, as we said in the last episode... Anderson had pulled his troops back to a ridge line three and a half miles east of Chancellorsville. The ridge line was the highest ground in the area. Little Billy Mahone's brigade was posted to block the orange turnpike at the small wooden Zoan Church. The line was extended a half mile to the southeast to the plank road by Carnot Posey's brigade. It then turned south past Tabernacle Church, where the line was manned, by Rand's Wright's Georgians. Those were the Confederates that the Federals in Hooker's flanking force would have run into had they continued pushing forward past Chancellorsville on April 30th, as George Meade had expected them to do. Right. But in any case, the advance of a strong enemy force into his left and rear on the Chancellorsville front was a threat that Robert E. Lee couldn't ignore. That bold Federal movement coupled with the lack of aggression displayed by the Yankees, who had crossed the Rappahannock just below Fredericksburg on April 29th, convinced Lee that the real danger to his army lay to the west, from the Federals at Chancellorsville. To confront that threat, by the evening of April 30th, Lee was ready with a new plan. Even as Anderson's rebels were digging in at Zoan Church, Lee issued orders that would put the rest of the Confederate Army in motion. We really can't stress enough that Lee's plan violated all conventional military wisdom, 
which dictated that a commander never divide his forces in the face of a numerically superior foe. Remember that Lee's numbers were already diminished because of the absence of two of Longstreet's divisions. Now Lee would divide his army once again by leaving 10,000 troops under Jubal early at Fredericksburg, while the rest of the army, roughly 45,000 men, marched to confront the federal threat to the west. Lee knew he was sorely outnumbered, but he clearly didn't consider himself or his army outmatched. Lee had outgeneraled McClellan, thrashed John Pope, and bloodily repulsed Burnside. And now, although Hooker had surprised him by getting a federal flanking force into his rear, Lee obviously expected that if he made a move to seize the initiative by shifting most of his available force to the Chancellorsville front, then he, rather than Hooker, could set the tone for the impending battle. Lee's orders to Stonewall Jackson that evening were to, quote, move at dawn tomorrow up to Anderson, end quote. Lee elaborated in a dispatch to Richmond, saying, quote, I determined to hold our lines in rear of Fredericksburg with part of the force and endeavor with the rest to drive the enemy back to the Rapidan. Robert E. Lee certainly recognized that, eventually, he might have to give up the Rappahannock line in the face of the vast, threatening enemy host. But true to form, he wasn't going to do so without a fight. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Lee started his shift to the left with the troops closest to Dick Anderson, the division of Lafayette McClaws, which was to start its march that night. Anderson and McClaws were the two divisions from Longstreet's First Corps that had remained at Fredericksburg with the Army. McClaws was told to leave one of his four brigades for the defense of Fredericksburg, and William Barksdale's Mississippians were selected. Stonewall Jackson's orders were to leave one division in the lines facing Sedgwick's Federals below Fredericksburg. He chose Jubal Early for this task, and Stonewall was to take the rest of the Second Corps, the divisions of A.P. Hill, Robert Rhodes, and Raleigh Colston, and march west at daylight on May 1st. By splitting up his army in this manner, General Lee would be massing better than four-fifths of his troops against Hooker's flanking force at Chancellorsville. Shortly before dawn on Friday, May 1st, 
McClaws arrived with 7,600 men to reinforce Anderson's line on the Zoan Church Ridge. Then, around 8 a.m., Stonewall Jackson arrived on the scene to take overall command. Lee had instructed Jackson to, quote, make arrangements to repulse the enemy, end quote. But Stonewall, ever seeking to strike the enemy, now planned to repulse the Yankees by taking the offensive and slamming into the enemy head on. Jackson directed McClaws to move directly west out the turnpike toward Chancellorsville, and he directed Anderson to move in the same direction following the Orange Plank Road, which branched off the turnpike and ran roughly parallel to it to the south. As reinforcements from Stonewall's Second Corps arrived on the scene from Fredericksburg, they would aid Anderson and or McClaws as necessary. One Confederate officer wrote that the advance would be, quote, a supreme effort, a union of audacity and desperation. By the time the Confederate advance got underway around 11 a.m., Joe Hooker had decided that he, too, was ready for action. Couch's Second Corps had crossed the Rappahannock at U.S. Ford and had joined or was joining the flanking force at Chancellorsville. Sickles' Third Corps was crossing the river at the Ford and would soon be up also. That would mean that on May 1st, Hooker would have gathered about 78,000 troops around Chancellorsville, and so he was ready to make his next move, getting out of the wilderness and heading for Lee's vulnerable rear behind Fredericksburg. Hooker ordered Meade to advance two-thirds of his corps toward Fredericksburg along the river road, which swept northeastward away from the turnpike before arcing back toward it near Banks Ford, which was a key river crossing five miles west of Fredericksburg. Meanwhile, Meade's other 5th Corps division, under Major General George Sykes, moved east straight down the turnpike. Along the Orange Plank Road to the south, the 12th Corps under Slocum also moved east. The Federal and Confederate columns, advancing toward each other on the same roads, clashed at about 20 minutes past 11. Going into battle is a serious matter, an ordeal which the bravest dread. Outwardly, some may not exhibit a sign of fear, but it requires all the willpower a brave man is able to put forth to stand in ranks to be shot at. One feels as though he were suspended over eternity by a slender thread. Some boasted they were not afraid, but they were mere cowardly blowhorns who always slunk out of ranks or hid behind rock and trees in the rear when the bullets began to whistle. With their names and place of residence legibly written on the fly-leaf of diary or Bible, or stamped on metallic badges securely fastened to their clothes, for the purpose of identification in the event of being left upon the field, steadily our rather sad-looking boys moved in the direction of the firing in front. Notwithstanding the seriousness of the occasion, we could not refrain from smiling at the sight of the myriads of cards strewn along the whole breadth of the road and among the bushes along the sides, lying thick as autumn leaves. 
the troops that had passed along the road before us to enter the battle flung away their decks of cards for the reason that none of the boys would have a report go home in case they should be badly wounded or killed that there was found on their person a deck of cards. Other scenes, productive of graver thoughts, now presented themselves. Streams of wounded soldiers were coming back from the battle then in progress. Wounds of all descriptions met the view. Some of the men dragged themselves along by the aid of rude crutches. Some came with a shattered arm dangling by their side, and others more seriously hurt were brought in on ambulance or stretcher. Private Henry Meyer, 148th Pennsylvania Infantry, Caldwell's Brigade The whole line went forward with a yell. We were fighting Sykes regulars. They stood up well for some time, but we steadily advanced, and when we got to close quarters, they began to give way sullenly. We reached a rail fence, which ran along a slight ridge, on which were a few stunted oaks. From this position we poured into the enemy a hot fire which made them break and run. A Yankee who had fallen about fifty yards in front of me held up his handkerchief as a signal of surrender. I suppose he thought we might fire on him, but I hope we did not have a man in our army so cowardly as to fire on a fallen foe. One Federal officer, a captain or, or lieutenant, behaved with splendid courage. He kept up his part of the line when nearly all the rest had left. I don't think he was more than a hundred yards from me. I fired at him several times, but missed him. Lieutenant Hill Carter rode up and asked me to let him fire my rifle at the officer, whose example alone kept his men from running. He dismounted and fired my rifle. He handed my gun back to me with the remark that he had hurt himself more than the Federal officer. The gun had kicked him. Poor Carter was mortally wounded a few hours later. I did not know him personally, but he was a gallant fellow and deserves to be remembered. Private Westwood A. Todd, 12th Virginia Infantry, Mahone's Brigade. On April 30th, with his plans unfolding smoothly, Hooker issued General Orders No. 47. Quote, it is with heartfelt satisfaction the commanding general announces to the army that the operations of the last three days have determined that our enemy must either ingloriously fly or come out from behind his defenses and give us battle on our own ground where certain destruction awaits him. Everywhere they heard Hooker's congratulatory order. The Union troops cheered. Little did they or Hooker know, though, that Robert E. Lee was refusing to stick to the script. Rather than retreating or allowing Hooker to choose the battlefield, Lee had shifted most of his army to meet the Federal threat, and thanks to Stonewall Jackson, the Confederates were already advancing toward Chancellorsville and taking the fight to the enemy. Hooker's plan for May 1st called for his flanking force to advance east until they were clear of the wilderness and squarely in the rear of Lee's lines at Fredericksburg. On May 1st, Hooker didn't expect, and was ill-prepared, to have to risk a serious battle to gain the position he wanted. 
but with Stonewall Jackson hurling Confederate troops toward Chancellorsville, rebels were advancing up the same roads, the Federals were coming down, and a serious battle is just what was brewing on May 1st, whether Hooker was ready for one or not. It's important to understand that Hooker had anticipated any rebels encountered on May 1st would be on the defensive, not aggressive and attacking. Stonewall Jackson, by pressing the advance as he did, threw a wrench into Hooker's plans and caught the Federal commander off guard. Of the three Union columns moving forward that day, Meade's to the north, Sykes in the center, and Slocum's to the south, Meade advanced down the river road almost without opposition and was inadvertently and ideally positioned, and certainly strong enough, to strike the rebels squarely in the flank. But nothing in Meade's orders allowed him the freedom to march toward the sound of battle just to the south. At the end of the day, Meade's two divisions here were turned back around and returned to where they had started that morning. They hadn't fired a shot the entire day, and the expedition down the river road had turned out to be nothing more than an exercise in futility. On the other hand, Sykes, in the center, advancing down the Orange Turnpike, ran into McClaw's rebels and found more fight than he could handle on his own. The tangled growth of the wilderness essentially left each federal column isolated, so Sykes heard nothing at all from Meade on his left or from Slocum on his right. By one o'clock that afternoon, all Sykes knew was that he was heavily outnumbered and about to have both his flanks turned. Just to the south, Slocum, advancing down the Orange Plank Road, ran into Anderson's Confederates. By that time, Sykes' column in the center was at risk of being crushed before support could reach him. Hooker, back at his headquarters at the Chancellor House, realized a moment of crisis had been reached. This fight on narrow roads, hemmed in by the tangled wilderness, was a battle that he hadn't anticipated. He was, he said, quote, apprehensive of being whipped in detail, end quote. That is, he feared that each of his isolated columns would, de- would be defeated separately by the unexpectedly aggressive Confederates. And so Hooker called off the advance. Orders went out to Sykes and Slocum and Meade to return to Chancellorsville. Sykes was relieved to get the order to pull back since his situation was critical. Slocum was furious to be told to withdraw, since he said he had hardly begun to fight, and he only obeyed the order to pull back grudgingly. Meade, who had had a clear road in front of him since starting out, was more puzzled than anything, but it was clear to him from the sounds of battle to the south that something had gone seriously wrong with the day's plan. Later on, Hooker's critics would severely, harshly condemn his decision to pull back on May 1st, and with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, would declare that it was the turning point of the campaign. For example, 35 years after the fact, a former staff officer declared, quote, The advance was stopped. The Battle of Chancellorsville was lost right there. Twenty-five years after the battle, 2nd Corps Commander Darius Couch remembered Hooker telling him that day, 
It's all right, Couch. I've got Lee just where I want him. He must fight me on my own ground. And although Couch added that when he left Hooker that day, he was, quote, convinced my commanding general was a whipped man, end quote, there is actually little evidence that that was actually the case. Right. Because Hooker's plan for May 1st had been wrecked by Stonewall Jackson's advance, and Hooker recognized that, but he actually didn't seem to be discouraged by the day's events, nor had he lost confidence in his overall plan. He had still achieved two of his primary goals. He had gotten into Lee's flank and rear, and he had drawn Lee out from his Fredericksburg defenses. When Hooker told Couch he had Lee right where he wanted him, that was no wishful idle boasting, for by concentrating his forces at Chancellorsville, Hooker could fight the upcoming battle defensively, which was fine by him since it meant that it would be Lee who would have to try to coordinate and advance over the narrow, constricted roads through the tangle of the wilderness. When all was said and done, at the end of day five of his campaign, therefore, Hooker was still confident in himself and his plan. But, but by calling off his advance and deciding to fight the upcoming battle defensively, Hooker had undeniably yielded the initiative to the enemy. Needless to say, that was always a dangerous thing to do where Robert E. Lee was concerned. And sure enough, that evening, Around dusk on May 1st, a mile and a quarter east of Chancellorsville, Lee and Stonewall Jackson sat themselves on a fallen log in a little clearing in the woods and began to plan what to do with the initiative Mr. F.J. Hooker had surrendered to them. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is That Furious Struggle, Chancellorsville and the High Tide of the Confederacy by Chris Mikowski and Christopher D. White. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then, as we wrap up this show, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade who signed up this past week, Lawrence and Thomas and Hershey. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Chancellorsville. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.